0: morning again, Redeemer family. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be reading the entire chapter and then praying and asking God's blessing upon our time together. Give you a few seconds to get there and uh, we'll jump in. I'm going to actually start at the end of chapter 12, so I'll stop, I'll start at verse 31 of chapter 12 and read into chapter 13. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing." And if I give away all that I have, and if I even deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, but many of your Bibles might say, keep records of wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect or the perfect one comes, the partial will pass away. father in heaven thank you again for being a speaking god day to day creation sings of your praises and yet lord your your bible your word the word tells us what you are like thank you holy spirit for carrying the saints across the ages thank you holy spirit for giving them what we now call the scriptures and thank you, Jesus, the living word, for coming and, and living uh, and bringing more clarity around the central message of the scriptures. And as we're reminded from your mouth, Jesus, all of the prophets, all of the law, all of the writings, they're, they're all about you. And so may we land the plane there, marveling in you and who you are and what you've done. And may we depart and may your spirit keep working in us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a very popular passage. It's, it's, I would say it's up there right with John 3.16. You've probably seen 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe if you have participated in a protest or a march, you might see a sign. 1 Corinthians 13, let us love one another, right? Maybe you've been in a professional football game and you've seen the sign, let us love one another. Maybe you've been to um, Hobby Lobby or Michael's, and you've went to their craft section where they have pictures that you take and you buy and you hang them on your wall. And you've probably seen 1 Corinthians 13. Or maybe you've gone to a wedding and the couple decides that as they become one flesh that they want to have this passage read at their wedding. It's just popular both within the church and outside of the church. And it's popular because it's, it's majestic, it's poetic, it's beautiful. There are very few passages in the entire Bible that speak of love in this way. But we got to be careful because this passage wasn't necessarily written about a wedding. It's about a family, all right, but it's about the family of God. That this passage, I think when Paul wrote it, I think he, he really had a particular church in a particular place in mind as he penned these words. And so it's the number one rule in real estate. What's most important, it's, it's location, location, location. And so we have to step back from the popularity of the passage and just ask the question, where is it located? And how does that help me understand the, the overarching message? And if you've been tracking with us as we've made our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, it's located in the middle of conflict, there's a lot of conflict happening in the body they're sleeping with each other's wives, they're denying one another, they are uh, overstepping the poor when they come together to partake of the supper. The, the, the wealthy are having seconds and thirds and the poor are being sh- shut to the side and they're, they're competing over, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Jesus, that, that, that even last week he's about the spiritual gifts and it reads as if Paul wants to hear a symphony where all of the gifts are being brought to bear in the life of the church, but he doesn't hear symphony he hears one dominant group and they're they're the loudest and they're the noisiest and it's the group that's speaking in tongues they think that tongues are supreme and they're suppressing everyone else and making everyone else in the body feel second class and it's into all of that conflict that paul says wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute that you're missing something you don't love each other And I don't care how gifted you are, I don't care how much knowledge you have, that you're missing the missing ingredient, that what Paul is actually saying is is what we've entitled the sermon this morning, that your giftedness minus love is nothing. Nothing. And that's the point he's trying to make. He's trying to prop up the centrality and the indispensability of love inside of a covenant community. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. They had to be reminded that something was far greater than their gifts. Something was far more greater than their theology. Far more greater than their knowledge and their faith. Love. Is indispensable. And if they needed to be reminded of that, who are we to say that we don't either? And so I want us to look at the heading under three points, and I think it's gonna follow like straight with the text. So sometimes when preachers preach, we try to make it three points. In the last couple of weeks, I've done four points, and so we're gonna come back to three points but the three points i think are in the passage and the first is the significance of love and then we'll, we'll look at the shape of love we're going to end with the story of love so let, let's think about the significance of love now you know paul is I, I think this passage is is a sandwich in other words you look at how chapter 12 ends he says i will show you a more excellent way well what's the excellent way Look at verse 13 of chapter 13. So faith and hope and love abide, but these three, the greatest is love. And so there's the bracket that that what Paul is saying is central, what what is indispensable, what is the most excellent thing that churches can strive after. It's love, that love is significant. And if you look at it, Paul in verses one through three, you can call it hyperbole, I I would prefer he gives them, he constructs this hypothetical person, right? So he's saying like, hey, if this person had tongues, and if this person had faith, and if this person had power, and if this person had sacrifice, and if this person had generosity, right, he's building up this, this hypothetical person. But before we look into who he's building, I want us to pay attention to a few things. Notice that what he says in verse 1 through 3, we've seen these, these, these words before. If I speak in tongues, or if I have prophetic powers, or understanding all mysteries, or knowledge, or faith, or even in verse 3, if I give away generosity, those aren't haphazard words. Those are actual spiritual gifts that Paul has already talked about. He's already talked about tongues. He's talked about faith. He's talked about knowledge. He's talked about wisdom. He's talked about generosity as a gift in the book of Romans. And so what Paul is actually saying is, if, hypothetically speaking, there was one person who was off the charts gifted, bear with me, right? Bear with me. But notice who Paul is building up. I I love this. This shows a, a, a beautiful way the spirit is working. Paul doesn't say, Hey, you Corinthians, if one of you could speak in tongues of men and angels, but not love, you're a noisy glow. Notice he says, but I. So so the key word there is I. I, the apostle Paul, even me, even I, the Apostle Paul. When Paul says I speak in tongues more than all of y'all, I, if I had prophetic powers. If I have all faith, if I give all away. So Paul is not just saying, hey, if this were you, he's actually putting himself as the apostle on the stand. And here's what he's saying. If I, the apostle, could speak in all tongues. And when you look at the rest of the book, it it reads as if tongues, first and foremost, was a gift for unbelievers. Paul's going to say that. Secondly, it was to build them up and then third, it reads as if it was an intelligible language. And so here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, if I knew all of the languages that were spoken under the heavens, having never studied them, but I knew them so that I could go in and be a missionary to people who have never heard the word of truth. And on top of that, if I knew the language that the angels speak, we don't even know what to do with that. What, what do angels speak in? And Paul is saying, if I, the apostle, had all of that knowledge, so that's the first thing. Second, he goes on to say, if I had prophetic powers, and if I understood all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith, and my faith was so perfect, and notice what Paul says, I could remove mountains in the plural. Now, where do we see this correlation in the scriptures? You remember when Jesus healed the the son who was possessed by a demon that was causing epilepsy and the disciples tried to heal him and they couldn't heal him and so the daddy says look y'all get out the way let me take him to Jesus and he takes the boy to Jesus Jesus casts out the demons and the disciple says look master why couldn't we do that and Jesus says look your faith He says, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell that mountain to move. And what Paul is actually saying, theoretically speaking, if I had faith, not the size of a mustard seed, but of a mustard tree. And I could move not one mountain, but a mountain range. That's mega off the charts faith. And then he says, and if I had the gift of generosity, where I gave everything I had away that there was nothing left to give, and then I gave my life to be burned, which is code word for what Nero was doing to Christians And around Paul's day, maybe around the time this was written, what Nero did, he tarred Christians, and then he burned them alive. And what Paul is saying, if after I've given everything away, then I give my life. Now, just think about the, the spiritual resume of this person that he's constructing. And I think we need to read it cumulatively. What do you mean? I think what Paul is saying is if I had all the gifts, not just one, all of them tongues, I got it. Generosity, I got it. Knowledge, I got it. Faith, I got it. Miracles, I got it. And I don't think he just means he had all of the gifts, he had all there was to have for all of the gifts. That's the type of person that he's constructing and he's saying it's me, if it were even me. And then he says, if I had all of that and didn't have love, he says, I'm just noise. Again, nothing, I am nothing. Mega giftedness minus love Paul says, it's it's nothing. Now, where will Paul get such an idea? Because Jesus says something like that, doesn't he? In Matthew 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, on that day, many will say, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And what Jesus will say is, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. So Paul is saying something very similar. He's saying that if you could do all these things and if God, here's the thing. And I'm, I'm wrapping my mind around it. God does not need a converted gifted person to rescue people he will use a non-converted common grace gifts given person in the glory of his own name and that person will use their gifts and exercise those gifts but they lack love and they're doing it for the wrong reason they're not abiding and guess what people come to faith and that person goes to hell. So that equation that Paul is picking up on, that's an equation Jesus began. And it's, it's underscoring our capacity to settle for the counterfeit. And to miss what's most important. And Paul and Jesus, they're saying, I love you too much. To not let you know that love and abiding with Jesus, that's the start. That this is how significant love is. Francis Schaeffer, he has a sweet little book that someone um, gave me. And the name of it is The Mark of a Christian. And love is significant for our enduring together and growing together. But Francis Schaeffer also calls the way that we love, he calls it the final Christian apologetic. And what he means is this, that we tend to think about loving the world by going and making disciples. And that is true. That is so true that we need to go. We need to teach. We need to um, share our faith. We need to sort of do that with unbelievers. But Schaeffer actually says there's another way that we share our faith and it's by how we love each other, that they, the world, will know you are mine by how you love one another. So love is central for mission, and love is central in the covenant community. I think that's what Paul is getting at, which moves us to the second point, the shape of love. Paul tells us it's important, it's that important but he doesn't tell us what it looks like. And so he does sort of flesh out, this is what it looks like. Now, I don't think Paul is defining love per se, but I do think he's describing what it looks like in the context of a real church. Now, this letter was written before the printing press. And so the way that you guys all have your Bibles and all have your smartphones and you are individually looking at it in front of you, that was not how this would have, letter would have been received that it would have more than likely been one letter, and in a setting like this, in a home, one person would have had a copy. They would have made copies to keep, but the original copy would have been read in a setting like this, and the entire church would have been summoned to listen to the reading of the scriptures. And so just imagine that for a second, that you show up, and Paul knows everything that's going on, and then he stands up, somebody stands up, and he reads this, and I think what Paul is saying is that if, if, if we're going to be in a local church, you will eventually find yourself in community with other sinners saved by grace, and it'll get messy. It'll get messy because the remnants of the old man and the old woman, they still reside in you. And the remnants of the old man and the old woman still resides in the person sitting next to you and the person you're looking at right now. So it's going to be hard when we get together. It's also going to be hard because Paul says it. He says, look, right now we see things dimly. We see things dimly. We, we know things in part. And so here's what that means is that you never, ever have someone completely figured out. You just don't. I don't care how good your intuition is. We still see things and see people and see truth and see God dimly right now imperfectly and because we see things dimly and imperfectly and because we're all sinners in transition and transformation when you put us in a community guess what we're gonna hurt one another we're gonna sin against one another and even though the church is the sweetest community on on the planet that if you draw near to a body you will have times when it's not sweet. And there's a dangerous idea floating among Christians today. And I've seen it because I was a campus pastor and, and I, I kind of watch kind of what students, what they're doing right now and who they're listening to. I see it on, on Instagram and who they retweet. And, and I'm just, I, I'm deducing from what I'm, what I'm perceiving is a, is a fundamental flaw in Christianity right now. And because of YouTube, because of websites, because of podcasts, because of apps, that we have this form of Christianity that I think Jesus and Paul would look at and they would say, what are they doing? And here's what we think. We actually think that the best way for us to live out our faith is by not being in a covenant community. I can just figure out, it, it's, it's a million preachers online. I can find the one who he just suits, or he or she, they just sort of, they suit everything I want to hear. That's who I want to listen to. And then if I don't like them, let me go to somebody else. And then I don't have to give and I don't have to actually get off my couch and serve. I don't have to have table fellowship with people. I, I, I can just pick and choose like I want from the mighty place of my couch. And here's the problem, if that is your version of Christianity, then guess what? You'll never, ever run into the hardship that you see in this passage. You just won't. You just cancel somebody, I don't got to listen to that no more, and I just do whatever I want. You never have somebody who disagrees with you in person. You never have to know somebody in your circle and, and, and they're, they're getting blessed. They got a season in their life where the Lord is just moving and you're looking at your own lot like, man, when are you going to do something for me? Right. You never have to disagree or confront you. you can, and so here's the thing. If you think that version of Christianity is biblical, it's not. Look, I love our live stream. But I've often thought about killing it. What I would rather see than numbers on the live stream is people here. But it's good if you're sick. I get it, baby. You need it. You can be connected. If you're traveling, it's great. When I'm on sabbatical, you best believe I'm going to be somewhere either worshiping in person. And if we're traveling, we're going to be worshiping here. But it can become a crutch. For people who choose that way of Christianity, you're neglecting one place where you can potentially get hurt, but you're opening yourself up to you, yourself and you, Christianity. You're not bearing burdens and burdens are not being borne by other believers. No one is challenging you. No one knows you. And you're lonely. And you're siloed. See, this passage is not a flowery teach me how to love, like like this passage, it's like, let me show you how to love when conflict is happening in the body, when the sweetness don't smell sweet no more, that's when I'm calling you to love, and love looks a certain way, it looks by not doing certain things, Paul's going to give us eight, and it looks like doing certain things, so, and I love the symmetry, so here are the eight things that love does not do. Love does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant, is not rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable, does not keep records of wrong, and it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so, if you are in a covenant community, you're gonna have moments where you witness the giftedness of others, where they get promotions, and they get spouses, and they get pay raises, and they have children and you feel looked over, you're gonna experience seasons where you suffer and have conflict in the body and you have to engage people different than you and love says when those moments come, this is how not to behave and this is how to behave. And so the unloving person can't handle the success of other people. Love does not envy. Envy is another word for jealousy. Jealousy is the inability and the unwillingness to rejoice when someone else gets something that you want. The unloving person can't handle that. But the unloving person can't even handle their own success. Why? Because they boast when they finally get it. The unloving person begins to fill themselves and they're filled with pride. And a key phrase of boasting is I, I i i the unloving person cannot navigate difference and diversity well they're rude in another word or one scholar says rudeness is breaking social norms of kindness behaving inconsiderately aggressively or deliberately offensively and so i envision the unloving person disregarding tactfulness They lack measured restraint. They run roughshod over people. The unloving person can't do conflict well. It's either my way or the highway. And the loving person says, brother or sister, first and foremost, our relationship is more important than me being right. And if we can reason around the scriptures together, then we can come to two totally different places. And guess what? We are still in relationship. I can die. What's more important is you and I. It's love. The unloving person can't even handle when an enemy is disciplined, they gloat over it. They might be tempted to rejoice. The unloving person can't forgive sin that has truly been repented of when a brother or sister comes to you and says, I'm sorry. And I don't mean lip service. I don't mean, let me just shut you up and tell you what I want you to hear. I mean, like, I'm genuinely broken and I'm endeavoring a new obedience, seeking by God's Spirit not to do that thing again. The unloving person, you keep a journal and you say, You hurt me there, and you hurt me there, and you hurt me, me there, and you hold me there. And every time you talk to me, what I'm putting in front of you is this: it's unloving. It can't forgive what's truly been repented of. But love also has a positive look. And he gives us eight aspects. Again, love is patient. Love is kind. Love rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So it's eight and eight. And I kind of think, like, like, Paul, why would you do that? In part, I think, it's for memory. Another part, I think Paul is kind of fashioning this new ethic Around the way the Ten Commandments are fashioned, that the Ten Commandments come with prohibitions: do not, do not, do not. But they also come with: but do this and do this. And we know that when you read the Commandments, the one where prohibitions are, we're we're also to do what's positively on the other side of that, and what is prohibited. I mean, what is. Uh, commanded we're also to move away from what is negatively prohibited and so i think paul is doing the same type of thing where if you land on the person where i'm a rule follower i need to know tell me make it plain tell me what i'm supposed to do and what i'm not supposed to do right so i think th- i think that's behind it but love is patient with people it's slow the cadence of love is not seconds it's years it's slow to throw the towel in. Love is kind. It looks for ways to proactively show warmth. Not just not offend, but it looks for ways to proactively show warmth and affection. It throws parties when truth is exalted. And it doesn't matter the personality of the speaker. It doesn't matter the gender. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter the race. That what matters most is truth. And when there is truth being proclaimed, we're throwing a party. And when relationships get hard, love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. This triad of all things underscores the main thing, that love is durable. Paul actually says, look, y'all, tongues will cease. Faith will be done away with hope. It's going to be over with because when Jesus comes back, you have what you've hoped for. When Jesus is revealed, the object of your faith is now in front of you. Tongues. They're going to pass away. And in the end, love will echo forever. And it doesn't just echo in eternity future. Paul says it should echo backwards, right now. This is the shape of love. I don't know about you, but I'm convicted when I read this. I'm convicted for two reasons. One, I have a front row seat into my own heart. And I also have a front row seat into this church. You see, this passage is not flowery language to help you love you can say your spouse, but the context is really the church. And I can say I have not always been a loving pastor. I've sought my own way. I've not Considered you at times. I've not handled giftedness in multiple places because of my own pride. And God has done amazing things in me and through me. And when He does that, I put my chest up. Look at what I did. I've gotten frustrated. Where I've thought about leaving ministry altogether because it's just hard. And the the language here is is love bears and love stays and love endures. And there have been moments where I don't want to endure. You see, like like that that's what I feel. Like, Like who can do this? It's impossible. And you're a loving church, I promise you. I believe that. I have friends around the country and we talk and we pray and we share about what's happening. You are a lovely church. If you choose to be here, you choose to die to some of your preferences. And that is a way of love. You love truth here. And you hold anyone accountable who is teaching to teach, thus saith the Lord. You love being on mission here. You're not just trying to build a holy, holy huddle and to say, forget what's happening in the city and the world around us. You care here, and you write letters, and you make meals when we're suffering. But no church is perfect. This week I had two African-American brothers in a spot I like to hang out and they, one's a businessman, another one is a lawyer. And I, I'm just trying to do what I do in my little spot and, and they come up to me like, hey, man, I hear great things about Redeemer. I'm going to come check it out. One other guy who's like, man, my mama been home. We ain't been in church in a long time. And she said, brother, you got to go to church somewhere. I'm coming to Redeemer. And you, he, here's my response to them. When they say, man, I hear your church is great. Here's what I say. It, it's like clockwork. One, it's not my church. That's the first thing. It's not my church. Two, praise God. Redeemer is a healthy church. And then three, we're not a perfect church. I've also seen lack of love here where we're rude and we run roughshod over people and we do nothing about it. I've seen the thinness of some of our relationships where we let politics divide us and we let wearing masks like divide us. I've seen conflict that doesn't get resolved and and people just leave. And It's not loving. I'm telling you, at the end of the day, it's not loving. We're not bearing and enduring and believing. We're healthy, but we can all grow in these areas. And so for, for five seconds, just look at the list. And do what Paul does. He puts himself in the story. Do you forgive people who've repented? Do you desire to stay in fellowship even if you disagree? Do you consider other people? Have you been patient and kind and present? You see, I think when we all look at this list, We all should feel like, man, this is impossible to do. And I think that's the point. Which moves us to our final point. The story of love. God calls us to not only name the ways that we don't love well. Our God calls us to change. And to be transformed. And to learn how to love. Even if we trip over ourselves in doing it. And to do that, we need the bigger story. I think what Paul does is in verses 10 through 12, he does a gospel pivot. He appears to shift from talking about love to talking about the truly lovely one. Look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. What? Face to face? He's saying we're going to be face to face with someone. (laughs) Look, now I know things in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Who fully knows you right now? It's your Savior. (laughs) What does he mean in verse 9? Now we know in part, but when the perfect or the perfect one comes, the partial will pass away. Whose coming is going to make all things new? Whose coming and arrival will mean the death of faith and the doing away of hope because the substance will be there. Paul is pivoting from talking about love to talking about the most lovely one. And it's Jesus. Jesus. And what Paul is saying, I think, is we have to orient ourselves into the bigger story. And it's his story. You see, Jesus is not just loving. John says God is love. And therefore, the only person who can truly love this way is the God that this passage is describing. God loved you. God chose you in Jesus before the foundations of the world. Jesus loved you and became a propitiation for your sin. It is Jesus' name that we can insert in this passage, and the mystery of the passage unfolds. You see? Jesus is patient with you. When his disciples sinned against him, he didn't can them. He found them and and cooked breakfast for them. Jesus is kind to you. He's a kind king, treating his servants with dignity and gentleness. Jesus never envies. Jesus is never jealous. He was a single man, and he threw out all the stops when a friend of his family ran out of wine at their wedding. He does not boast. He often wanted to conceal his own identity. He's not rude. He sees people that we skip over and ignore. He doesn't insist in his own way that hours before he was crucified, he sweated blood and asked the father, is there another way? And the father says, there is no other way. And Jesus, for the joy, the joy that's, that was set before him, he endured the cross and the shame. He's not irritable. He's not easily provoked. He is so kind and so good and so loving and so compassionate and so gentle and so sacrificial and so present and, and so beautiful that what Paul is describing is him, and he takes no pleasure in the death of the ungodly. There will be tears in his eyes when he sends those who rebelled against him to hell. He's the eternal optimist, believing all things about the church. He says, I will build it, and the gates of hell will not undo it. He is the one who had all the gifts and all the love and he was made nothing so that we could be everything. You see, when we posture ourselves there under his love and receive his love and abide in his love and soak up his love That's the only remedy for us being unloving. You see, if we're having a hard time forgiving, we don't quite understand how much we've been forgiven. When we're having a hard time being patient, we don't understand how patient Jesus is with us. When we don't practice kindness, we don't understand how kind he is to us. When we're we're rude and given over to rudeness, we're not understanding something about his character. And what Paul is saying, beloved, it flows inside out. And this is what Jesus was getting at in John 13. John says, Jesus loved them and he loved them to the end. And on the final night of his life, he chose to have Passover with his disciples. And then Jesus bent down and dressed himself for service and he washed his disciples' feet. And it was pointing to the washing that would happen on the cross. He's washing them with water, but tomorrow I'm gonna wash you with my blood. He's cleansing them of their dirt. Tomorrow I'm gonna cleanse you of your filth. And then he gets up and he tells the disciples, a new commandment I give you. He doesn't say love one another. He says, as I have loved you, now go love one another. You see, it's inside out. It's you love me, now I can love. You're kind to me, now I can be kind. This is a lovely place. I promise you it is. But beloved, we can grow in our love from the inside out when we walk in the bigger story, his story, the story of love. I want to close with this quote that I, this prayer that I heard this week. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, And what we are not, Father, make us, make us more loving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the goodness and the sweetness of it. Thank you that you remind us that love is important and and it's not arbitrary. It's more than, than a feeling. It shows itself in our behavior, in our thinking, in our living. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming sin and specifically dying for us and our lovelessness and our jealousy and our bitterness. Thank you that your loving grace is transformative. You change us by your love. Help us to love you and help us to love neighbor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.